Hello, and welcome to another episode of Building Web Apps Badly. <laughs> um, I will never do that intro again. Um, so today we're going to talk about timing. We're going to talk about timing, timing, timing. Uh, time as a concept. <laughs> time as um, something you can trade for other things. Timing in terms of... Uh, web page loading time uh, and timing mostly in terms of like how much time does it actually take to build a web app um, so let's start with um, let's start with the main topic which is building web apps so we are going to Let's say we're going to build a new web app, and it's not going to be something trivial like a to-do list or, you know, like a plain text notepad. I, I know even those kinds of apps can get pretty complicated, but let's pretend that we're creating something a little uh, inventive, a little new, so something that people haven't seen before. Um, and we don't have to specify what it is, because <laughs> what's the point in, in that? Um, but <clears throat> I want to talk about something like that because it actually takes time to come up with the idea and to refine the idea and to test the idea. And it's a lot of time. It's super valuable time, um, but it's a lot of time. Um, you can conduct, like... Uh, two or three interviews a day for multiple weeks and still, you know, not have a solid answer. And um, then you can, you know, sit with your research, brainstorm about it, think about it, uh, you know, build prototypes and still not have a solid answer. Um, and you might be thinking, well, <laughs> why not just build it? Just build it and then, you know, have an MVP version and ship it and see what people think about it. And the problem with that is that, it's, first of all, it's very, very easy to get carried away and, you know, spend months and months building something when you really don't know if there's any demand for it. Uh, but the other thing is that um, uh, there's a lot of key decisions that you have to make very early on in your uh, development process about what stack you're going to use, what database you're going to use, uh, what front-end libraries you're going to use, how quickly it needs to load up, if you can get away with making, you know, a desktop web app and, and not a mobile, and not like a mobile responsive one. Because there's some industries, you know, some businesses where it really doesn't matter. Uh, or like it matters very little, at least. Um, so there's a lot of things to consider. And so if you don't consider those things up front, if you don't know your customer well enough to make those decisions well, then you might end up uh, creating something that um, is uh, not optimal. And uh, you might realize, you know, a few months into the process that you have to go back and rewrite things because <laughs> your life is, is miserable trying to maintain and build upon this uh, web stack that you don't really believe in anymore. Uh, for example, let's say, just a, like a random example, 
Um, let's say you set out building uh, like a private note-taking app, a note-taking app, right? Like a private journal kind of app. And you end up realizing that the social feature of the app is the thing that people are really attracted to. So there's like some, I don't know, private messaging feature that you, you know, released one afternoon and you didn't think it was going to be a big deal, but turns out, you know, 50% of your users are using it and it's getting the most engagement. <clears throat> so you decide to switch to a social kind of foundation. And it turns out you need profiles and then you need, you know, friend requests and stuff like that. And before you know it, you have a full social app <clears throat> and your uh, database is, you know, like a normal uh, relational database or even worse, right? If you're building a simple note-taking app, you probably just need a document database. So maybe you started with that. So you have a document database and what you really need is probably a graph database, which I don't really know <laughs> what that is, but I do know that it exists and I do know that it's good for storing uh, social graph data. Um, and that means like data that has a lot of connections. So the people have a lot of connections, who you're sharing with, uh, you know, what content you're sharing with who has a lot of connections. And so if your app gets really big, having a graph database is, is I think, much more um, performant than having, you know, a document database. And you can still, you can make them both work, right? I mean, I think ultimately you could make them both work. Uh, I think Google, uh, I think, I don't think they use a graph database, but I'm not sure. With like when they were working on Google+. Plus. But, um, Anyways, um, if you started out by researching the field, could you have stumbled upon the idea that you needed a, a social app, that that was like the most compelling part? And I think, you know, maybe not, right? Maybe you needed to build some part of the app. But maybe if you treated it more like a prototyping research project and, you know, you built, um, built the app in a really, really lightweight way that only took you like a few weeks to put together and it was really rough around the edges, but, you know, you got it out there and then you were looking for these things, right? If you were looking for what are people attracted by, what are they really using in this app, you might have stumbled upon the social aspect sooner, and then you could have switched over to building a social network much sooner, right? So I think that's the whole idea of like <clears throat> building a, a lean product, you know, getting a minimum viable product out there as soon as possible, is you really don't know what direction you're going in. And <clears throat> what I would claim is that a lot of people, me included, um, uh, a lot of developers in particular fall into this trap of uh, thinking about web apps in the wrong way. And I, I have fallen into this trap even though I have believed for a long time that I learned this lesson, that I wasn't subject, you know, to building products with no audience. You know, I was like, oh, no, 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 I understand. I get, you know, usability is really important. Design is really important. You know, doing some research, you know, like understanding the market. And I thought I could get around a lot of the problems by building a product for myself. 
because um, if you're, you know, the person you're building it for, maybe you can get around some of the user research <laughs> uh, processes. Um, but it turns out that <clears throat> um, I'm actually a little bit averse to doing uh, research because I like building things and I like showing things that I built to people. So um, for that reason, I kind of get in, stuck in this uh, trap of coming up with an idea, thinking it's really awesome, and building it, and then showing it to people, realizing that it's, it doesn't resonate quite as much as I thought it would. And then instead of <laughs> uh, doubling down and like, you know, researching some more and figuring out what they really want and getting more feedback, instead of that, I kind of <laughs> turn around and I run away from, the, from you know, that aspect of it because I, I, I think I'm very uncomfortable being wrong. You know, admitting that, you know, what I built might not be this perfect, <laughs> you know, product that, you know, lives up to all my, my dreams, <clears throat> but um, it might be something that, you know, is halfway there or a quarter of the way there and needs a lot of improvements. Um, and so what I would suggest is that instead of letting the product uh, determine the direction that you move in and determine the possibilities. I would uh, suggest instead treating it like a, a research project. <laughs> and um, with the research project, your goal is to get feedback as soon as possible and start improving things as soon as possible. Now, of course, I say this knowing full well that <laughs> I'm probably not going to do it. I have um, several products on my mind right now. And I, I don't plan on doing a ton of research for them. I plan on just building them because I'm so excited about them. So even though I'm, you know, sharing this research or sharing this, you know, idea that you should do research, I don't actually fully believe in it myself, even though, you know, I, I think, a, a, you know, logically it makes a lot of sense. But I think there's this, there's this, um, if I had to be honest, I think there's this thing, this, um, you could call it a sickness, but I think you could also call it a superpower. I think there's this thing um, that entrepreneurs have that's a kind of a blindness. Uh, they can either, uh, you know, have it enabled or they can have it up. So they can either, you know, have the blinders on or they, they can have the peripheral, peripheral vision. And I think that, you know, if you're a founder and you know how to put those blinders on, you know how to ignore negative feedback, you know how to ignore distractions, and it's not like, um, <clears throat> it's like uh, depression. <laughs> uh, let me explain. So like in depression, I think a lot, like a lot of therapists would tell you, or at least, you know, therapists have told me, in depression, it's not that, you know, you're feeling sad all the time necessarily. It's that all of your feelings are depressed. They're all 
at a lower level. And so it's more of a kind of your body's unwillingness to feel anything than, um, than like, you know, constant sadness. It just, it just so happens that, you know, not feeling anything, it looks very similar to feeling sad. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but I think, you know, some of the um, medication that you get for depression also uh, masks feelings, right? It also pushes down feelings. But I think, I don't know, maybe, I'm not sure actually how well it works, but maybe it makes it less effort for you to depress the feelings. Anyways, we're way off topic now. Basically what I'm saying is that the blindness that an entrepreneur has as far as ignoring outside distractions, ignoring negative feedback. I am right next to a playground. That was a kid having a lot of fun. If you could hear that, I think, yeah, I think you could hear that. So, um, so the blindness doesn't choose, right? It's not like, oh, I'm just cutting out all negative feedback and I'm just going to be an idiot about this. <laughs> you know, like, obviously, if, if it's good negative feedback, you know, if it's something that's going <clears> to <throat> help you uh, down the road, you want to listen to it, right? There's no human being, or I mean, <laughs> I'm sure there's some, but there's very few human beings out there who wouldn't want to get some feedback that's going to save them, you know, years of time and effort, right? But the, uh, the blindness doesn't choose. It's not that kind of superpower. That's why I think it can also be called a sickness, is it's just a blocking out of everything. It's a blocking out of other people's opinions. It's a blocking out of social media. It's a blocking out of every type of distraction and just focusing on this one thing. And I think that if you're, you know, a researcher, a researcher, an experimenter, um, that's one type of activity that doesn't lend itself to the same kind of blindness that is required to take a, a big idea from not existing to existing. I think that uh, journey, it takes a lot of blindness. Because I think normally in our everyday life, you know, we're like semi-blind, right? You know, there's <laughs> habits we have, things we do that we do without thinking, right? It's just kind of automatic. I mean, I've found myself, you know, saying something to someone that I didn't mean to say or, you know, but like it wasn't bad. It was just like you know, natural. Like, I was just talking with them, and it just came up, it just came out. Um, or, you know, like, if I am walking home from work for the, like, hundredth time, you know, I might not see the world around me as clearly as I did, you know, the second time. Um, I might be distracted, you know, by, by thoughts. I might have a certain kind of blindness towards, you know, the external world. And so I think we all have this to a certain degree, but I think there's also a connection that uh, we all maintain just in order to have that natural, healthy exchange with the world. And I think, I'm not sure, <laughs> but I think that founders have, or I mean, it's not founders. I think it's any kind of person that sets out to accomplish a goal, right? I think, you know, people with big goals 
if they want to accomplish those goals, I think they they learn over time that it requires a kind of uh, kind of blindness and like a kind of like shutting off or shutting down of of certain natural processes. And I, you know, I wish it wasn't like this. I think there's ways around this, right? Um, you know, there's there's places that you can go. <laughs> You know, like coffee shops or um, co-working spaces, and they provide, you know, a similar kind of blindness, right? <laughs> and it's it's not. I mean, I'm I'm framing it in a negative way, in the way in the um, with the idea of like what it's cutting out from your life, but really, it's not a cutting out, right? Uh, what I meant by co-working spaces is that like if you're surrounded by other people who are working on uh, you know, p- big projects, and you know you you're not really looking at the external world, which you know might be sunny out, and people might be playing frisbee, and you know smiling and <laughs> enjoying life, and you're just like surrounded by people who are doing things. You're kind of living in a, a separated off world, right? It's a kind of blindness, but <clears throat> it doesn't feel like that. You know, when you're in it, when you're t- when you're thinking through a big idea. It feels like you are fully enveloped in this idea, and it almost becomes your world. It's almost like by giving it attention, you are bringing it to life. And as you feed it your attention, it is gradually, very gradually, seeping into your being and becoming a part of you, and you're becoming a part of it. And you can see it kind of nascently, like... (laughs) poke its head up and then you might show it to someone else and they might be like oh that's kind of cool and it might you know perk up a little bit more but when it's really young it's very fragile and so you have to be the one to take care of it and to and to feed it and it's not you know it's not fragile in the way that you know a small animal is fragile um because it feels like a whole world. It feels like an entire worldview, right? It can be the strongest thing in the world as long as just one person believes in it, right? But it's fragile in the way that uh, Tinkerbell is fragile. In the way that if enough people stop believing in it, it stops existing. And when you're the only person believing in it, the world depends on you. So, um, basically that goes, <laughs> goes back to the whole idea of, well, you gotta do research when you first start out. And <laughs> I've done research. I've done research at every startup I've worked at. I've done research for um, a couple of the side projects that I'm working on right now. And I think, honestly, it's been invaluable. I I don't want to undersell it. You know, it's not like, you know, you got to just put the blinders on and go, 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 go. What I would suggest is do some research, do some thinking, do some brainstorming, and then put the blinders on for a little bit, right? Learn... Learn what you're doing, you know? Like, if you're putting blinders on, be aware that that's what you're doing. 
uh, for a long time, for most of my life, I haven't been aware that that's what I'm doing. So it's been <clears throat> a little bit tough because, you know, I, I wake up, you know, two years later and I'm like, oh, <laughs> I was blind to all these, you know, realities around me that really matter very much to me and could have fed into, you know, my idea or fed into my world. And I just, I just cut them off and eventually starve myself and my idea. And so I think if you're putting the blinders on, if you're cutting yourself off from the world, yeah, do that, right? Bring the, the food of the outside world to your idea, you know, see, see how, it, how it likes it, see if it's going to survive and, and be nourished by, you know, what you're bringing to it. <clears throat> and, you know, focus on it and give it attention and, you know, see what you can do to, to help it out. But then go back consciously, you know, turn away from your idea as afraid of, as you are that it's going to stop existing. You have to, I think, learn to trust that maybe not exactly that idea is going to be back, is, is going to be there when you turn away, right? Because ideas change, especially if you change. But you have to trust to some degree that if you turn away and you go into the world, and then you come back to it, you know, an hour later, or a day later, or a week later, <clears throat> some form of it is still going to be there. And you can pick, off, pick up where you left off. And I think um, <clears throat> the way I use ideas, and I think the way a lot of founders use ideas, is unoptimum, op, unoptimally. But it's like a writer, uh, a writer, like a novel writer, that doesn't have a choice but to write. They're <coughs> creating and feeding this idea, not because, you know, <laughs> they were born to be an entrepreneur. It might be because they do not, uh, they're not in love with the world around them in the same way as they are in love with uh, this idea. And I think that that can happen if, say, you have uh, some kind of trauma in your, in your life, or you have some uncomfortable situation, uh, you know, with um, friends or family, or with your, you know, your surroundings or something. I think it can be, you know, very easy to, just like someone might uh, slip into a fantasy novel, uh, it can be very easy to slip into your own internal world and try to create something new. And I think the difference is that um, you're hoping that this thing you're creating will merge with the world. It's almost like writing a fantasy novel, hoping that if you get enough people to believe in elves, they'll pop out of the pages and, you know, start sharing the secrets of the forest with you. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, it's kind of along the same level. Um, so, but I think, yeah, there's obviously different degrees of founders, right? And I think, honestly, if you want to be a really good founder, you know, especially if you want to create a community around your idea, uh, you really have to be balanced and healthy. And what I'm talking about isn't that. It isn't healthy. But I think, hey, if you're doing that, if you find yourself in that situation, and it's really tough, and you, you feel like you're running away from the world, 
eh, whatever, you know? <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> Run away from the world. You know, like, if you're getting that instinct, it might be, I mean, it might be unhealthy, right? Um, but it might be healthy, right? There's, I think there's a lot of, a lot of times in the world when, <clears throat> uh, even if your, your reality is pretty nice, even if objectively you have it better off than a lot of other people in the world, um, it can be a really powerful, challenging, but a really powerful, enlightening, and beautiful experience to go into your own internal world and try to bring more of that world out into the external world. And it might lead to a lot of suffering. It might lead to a lot of um, <clears throat> feelings of incompetence uh, and feelings of frustration because it's, it's really hard, you know? Like, uh, it's like, you know, if you are <coughs> working on, a, on an idea that's, you know, as audacious as, you know, making unicorns real, then I think that, you know, you're going to be frustrated for a while, right? But imagine the person who gets so frustrated over and over again and learns to live with that to some degree, right? I mean, maybe there's other parts of their lives that sustain them or, you know, they develop a really great mindfulness practice or something, but maybe they find a way to live with that permanent feeling of, you know, maybe everything they do is just not meant to come into being. And if they can live with that and get comfortable with that and, ch and challenge that simply by sticking with it, right? Because, I mean, the feeling comes naturally, right? If, you, if, you're do if you're like, I don't know, trying to learn how to fly and you keep jumping and you're not flying, yeah, the thought's going to come up that, hey, maybe I can't fly, right? But then imagine getting comfortable with that and still trying, right? And I'm not saying you should try to, try to fly, but in a way I am, right? In a way I'm saying, like, what if by sticking with an idea that seems pretty far out there, you can make it real if you get comfortable with the idea that you can't do it. And I'm not saying that you admit you can't do it. I'm not saying that you give up. Because if you accepted that you can't do it, you would just give up, right? No, I'm saying you get comfortable with thinking that thought. That's all. And it's just like meditation or mindfulness, right? If a thought comes up that says, I hate myself, <laughs> you know, the idea would be to let that come up and let it pass away. The same with you know, I love myself and I'm, I'm the best thing ever. You know, you let it come up and you let it pass away. And that way you can live in accordance with what you believe in and what you want to make real without uh, giving in to momentary feelings or thoughts. And I think if there's one truth about a person that's able to bring a big idea into the world is that to a certain extent they have to have some mastery over their uh, 
Not mastery. I think that's the wrong word. I think it's almost the opposite. <laughs> but I think, yeah, what often looks like mastery to the outside world is actually surrender, I think, <laughs> in the internal world. And so I think it's actually more like that. It's more like surrender. And so you, if, you've, if you're actually listening to this web app podcast still, <laughs> we've gotten very spiritual on you um, all of a sudden. Uh, and not really all of a sudden, because I think I've been talking about this kind of stuff for the past 20 minutes. I'm going to wrap it up soon, because I think I'm probably running on 30 or 40 minutes. But I just want to say that uh, let's go back to time. So, with time, um, basically, the thing I wanted to talk about at the very beginning of this episode is that you have a lot of things to do, right? You want to have that time for research, and you want to have that time for building a product, and you want to have that time for testing it out with people and seeing what people think of it. And then you want to have that time to let it all go and give up on your idea and feel more depressed than anything ever (laughs) in your whole life and like you can't do anything. And then to come back to it and look at it from a different angle and realize that you can do it and you want to do it and you don't care that the world is telling you on some level, right? I mean, <laughs> it's like, it's like uh, jumping up in the air, right? <laughs> and saying, oh, the world keeps telling me that uh, I'm an idiot for trying to fly. And it's like, no, the world isn't telling you that, right? <laughs> There's no one actually telling you that. But the world, in a sense, if it doesn't react with praise and acclaim and congratulations, it can be interpreted as the world is, you know, not believing in you. And I think that is where, you know, a lot of the struggle of being a founder comes from is, uh, you know, you try and you try and you try and you know you're making progress. You have this intuitive feeling that you're really pulling off something great and you know it and you, you feel it. Um, but at the same time, the external world isn't changing. And it takes a long time, I think. <laughs> I think it takes a long time. It's like, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not going to use any more analogies. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I'm addicted to them. I, I swear I am. Uh, so anyways, you need a lot of time for a lot of different things. And basically, you need the time to change yourself. Because I think at the end of the day, the whole you know, entrepreneurial journey is about, uh, you know, realizing where you are, you know, wherever you are, right? Realizing where it is, realizing that if you're struggling to get people to use your website, uh, that's where you are. And, you know, and you can have two different attitudes or, you know, a thousand different attitudes about it, but you can have the attitude that you're going to do something about it and you know how to do something about it, or you can have the attitude that, you know, more research is needed, or you can have the attitude that, you know, it's a huge problem and you got to give up. And I think that, um, 
that those are all very important. They're all informative, you know, feelings. And uh, you need time to process them all. You know, if you're going to do this, you have to be willing to say, yeah, maybe this is a bad idea. And then you go through all of that and you feel your way through it and you realize that all your feelings were true. You know, there was some aspect of what you were going through that was bringing up these negative feelings that you needed to trust. But then once you did, once you trusted them, a new avenue appeared. And I think that that's really where it's at is you need time to do that. You need time to learn how to trust yourself and to, you know, realize what you're doing to yourself and to take a step back and be willing to take a step back. Because if you're doing this all on your own, if you're trying to build, you know, a web app that has, you know, a thousand customers and all of them are willing to pay you $10 a month or $20 a month or whatever, and you're going to provide this fantastically valuable service, that's a huge undertaking. And it's going to require a lot of internal and external exploration and change. And... (coughs) I think that if you can introduce some variety into that, you know, so that you're not just burning yourself out on one aspect of, of that. If you make it a more holistic approach where you are, you know, feeling your way through uh, and getting multiple inputs, you know, like you're not just building something and getting the input of, okay, that worked. Okay, I fixed that bug. Okay, you know, that little adrenaline rush or, you know, dopamine hit of, oh, I got something to work, right? If that's your only piece of feedback, you're going to be able to get things to work, but you might not necessarily get them to work with other people, you know, get it into the ecosystem of the world. So I think you need to switch between, uh, getting things to work, you know, as a, as the internal machinery, but then you also have to switch focus and be willing to let your idea change and adapt as you do switch your focus and realize what's happening there and focus a little bit on, you know, users and user research and brainstorming. And I think a a hugely undervalued thing is taking a step back and not doing anything. Not, like if you find yourself trapped in a, like a burnout cycle, being willing to let everything go and let it transform, you know, let it change. Let yourself acknowledge that this might not be working out or acknowledge that, you know, you might need to find a different direction. And then I think, Once you learn how to do that, you can be more in the flow of the world and you're going to get, you know, a much better idea of where you need to go next. And I think that uh, I read somewhere, there was this one person that said on a YouTube video, she she like quit her job at Google and uh, she was taking a break for a while and she just said that like it was so stressful stressful working for this big company that she loved it or maybe it wasn't Google I think it was a a different company but uh, like a you know it was a unicorn company like a really 
big, well-known company. And she said <clears throat> it was like her dream job. But that every day she had to come back home and, uh, <clears throat> and like, take a few hours to just process her day. And I think um, that that is super healthy. I think her awareness around that is super healthy. She said she always underestimated how long it, ta- it actually takes her to process her experience. And that usually it's, I think she said it was like an hour for every hour, you know? Like if she's like learning something in an hour and like really trying hard and working at something for an hour, she needs an hour to process that. And I think that's about right. And I think that that's my biggest learning from the past 10 years, (laughs) pretty much, is that, you know, at first you can kind of plow away at something and you can see quick returns and it can feel like you've hit the jackpot <laughs> in terms of like you're learning so quickly and you're, build- you're building on your experience so quickly. But I think if you want to keep that up long term, you need to be willing to take a step back and relax uh, and not focus on anything for at least, I think, an hour out of every hour that you're in that focus mode where you're just doing nothing, where you're letting your subconscious work through things or stuff like that. And I think that in the end of the, at the end of the day, that makes your, your job a thousand percent easier because a change in direction can be worth a thousand hours of work, honestly. Okay, so that's all I've got for now. That's my episode on time. Uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye.